I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're with us uh, this morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you, I would love the opportunity to do so. So if you have a few minutes after the service, stick around. Let me just uh, say hello face-to-face and, and shake your hand. We are continuing on in our series where we're walking through the book of John, the Gospel of John. We've taken a couple of weeks off. But if you missed the last two weeks, which we were not in John, I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. They're important sermons. Um, they're sermons that um, the, the, the topics in those sermons are near and dear uh, to the, kind of the heartbeat of our church. So if you were out, please go back and check out those sermons. But today we're back in um, the book of John. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, as always, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that in your grace and your kindness, you've chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. That we don't have to search and look around and wonder what you're like, um, what you do, but we see that in your word. And that is purely an act of grace and mercy that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through it. So this, this morning as we dig into it, I pray that, it would, that, that, that we would put ourselves under it, that we would allow the word to change us, that we would trust that your spirit um, is involved in the process as this is a spiritual activity as well. So change us this morning. And help us honor you as we live our lives once we leave this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About 20 years ago, I was, a um, long time ago, 20 years ago, I was um, at a, um, a, a, one of my really good friends from high school was getting married, and a group of us, kind of all the groomsmen guys that where we were all kind of close in high school, um, met at his parents' house um, to play poker um, that night at his parents' house. And there was a lot of, of, of alcohol there, and um, we were playing poker, and um, we were, um, I, I, chose, um, I chose not to drink, um, consume alcohol that night, primarily because I wanted to win, and the rest of the guys were. We all put money in, and I proceeded to um, win quite a bit. And then up and towards the end, um, I knocked a, a, a guy out who uh, was a friend of mine in high school, but we had kind of drifted apart in college. And he stood up and basically berated me, stood up at the table, was, was cussing at me, was saying that he hated me, that he, he, he thought I was... Uh, self-righteous because I wouldn't consume alcohol there that night. And I was looking down at everybody, and it's because of my faith, and, I'm, and I, I hate people because of the way I'm... All of this stuff, right? It, it, was, it was one of those times when I think of, have I ever been hated, truly hated? That's a memory that sticks in my mind. 20 years ago, the things he said to me, the way he said them, really sticks with me. Um, and more than anything, I did, by the way, win that night. I came with, went, left with more money than I came with. But um, that's not what I remember about that night. I remember about um, my friend standing up and berating me, and it was, it was because of my faith. It was because I was kind of living out the implications of my faith um, that, and choosing not to, to kind of um, overconsume alcohol that night that he, um, that he was mad at me. And it was one of the first times that I really felt hated for uh, my faith, and, and kind of, and, and he was clearly that that's why he was speaking these things over me. So I want to ask you the question, have you ever truly felt 
hated. Like face-to-face with words and actions, hated. Maybe it's, not, maybe it's not from your faith. Maybe it's just hated in general. But especially from your faith. Jesus, in this text this morning, warns us as disciples that we will be hated. We'll be hated. And, and to catch you up on the context, this is Jesus, and we've been in this for several weeks now, but he's in what is called the, the farewell discourse. And he has these final moments with his closest followers. And this is the last time that they're all going to be together like this before Jesus goes to the cross. And the relationship with him was never going to be the same as it is in these moments. So Jesus is packing in all of this important crucial, weighty teaching for his disciples, this kind of last message to them before some really bad things are going to happen to him. He's talked about the fact that he's leaving, and he's reminded them to abide in him. He's reminded them to love one another. He's washed their feet, showing this is what it looks like to serve one another. He has touched upon all these things, and then today we come to the part in the discourse where he warns them. And this is probably the heaviest kind of part of this discord because he's warning them that the world will hate them the world will hate them and that is the warning for us as well this morning so the kind of the roadmap this morning is one the world hates jesus two because of that the world hates us three there's good news here right at the end we'll see that jesus has provided help he's provided help for us in the midst of us living in this world. And fourth, I want to look at how do we love a world that hates us? We're called to love the world in different ways, but how do we do that when it hates us? So the world hates, Jesus provides help, and what do we do with this? That's the roadmap for this morning. So let's look at John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, and that literally means rooted in the world, that, that, that of the world means rooted in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, um, because, but, because, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right? If you were of the world, Jesus said it would love you. You're one of its own. But because I have chosen you out of the world, then the world hates you. So we need to define some terms here because there's some heavy things Jesus is saying. So what does John mean, the writer of this book, what does John mean when he uses the word world, the word world, right? What does he mean by that? Well, there's three primary ways this word is used in scripture. And the first one is when it's just used for all mankind, like all the human beings that that exist out there, right? That's the broadest usage. The next is kind of the, the, the world as the, all the people who aren't Christians. You have the Christians, the church, and then you have the world. right? So it's kind of a little bit more narrow. It's kind of the two groups of people idea. And then you have the third way. It is this kind of the most abstract way, but it is, it is the system of the world. It's the worldview of the cultures of the world. right? It's the, to use a philosophical term, the zeitgeist. Those of you who study philosophy, like the zeitgeist of the world. It's that abstract term. It's, it's kind of the systems that make the world go. The loves, the desires, what the world values. These things that run contrary to scripture and and contrary to the way God has designed things. This is the way that John is using the word world in this passage. That third way, right? This abstractive idea, the values of the world, the systems of the world. 
Right? He, he, he touches on this in his epistle, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So he uses this language. So I want to look at this for a moment. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Say the systems and the desires of the world go against the desires he's given to humanity. And the world and its systems and desires kind of pull people into the system and, and leads humanity into enslavement, joylessness, and destruction, according to that system. Rather than leading people into the path that God has laid out, the path of flourishing, the things that the way he created us, the design for how things should function that, lead, that can lead humanity to the most joy and to the most flourishing. Let's go back into the text of today, John 15, 18 through 19. So we get the idea for world here. Now we're going to see this idea of hate. Right? He uses the word hate here. This is a strong, emphatic word. It's actually a pretty good translation from English, from, from, from Greek over to English, right? This is, it's, it's hate. It's strong. Now the hate for God can manifest itself in a lot of ways, right? Speaking against God, ignoring God, ambivalence to God. Uh, not giving him credit, not wanting to give him power, right? Um, erasure, canceling God, trying to take God out of places, right? And here's the logic here, right? The logic here is the world hates Jesus, who actually is God, right? The world hates Jesus, who is actually God. And Jesus says he has chosen his followers out of the world. Now, this isn't taking them away from earth, obviously. He's the same, the same idea for world. He's taking them out of the structures, out of the belief systems of the world. And because he's chosen them out of the world, he's chosen his followers out of the world, then the world hates his followers because they're rooted in Jesus. They belong to Jesus. The foundation is in Jesus. We, we are connected to Jesus as the vine, which we saw earlier in this chapter. This is why the world hates the church. Because we can, we're united to Jesus. We're connected to Jesus, and the world hates Jesus first. Right? We saw what happened to Jesus. It's clear the world hates Jesus. And again, we're not talking about all the individual people in the world necessarily. Keep in mind the definition that John is using for the world. It's the systems. It's the desires of the world. Right? It's that abstract, the world, okay? the philosophies of the world. And when, the, and when John uses you here, he's actually a plural you. It's so easy for us to read this as individuals thinking, oh, this is talking to me. That is kind of true, but he's actually talking to the church. When he says he, they, the, the world hates you, he's actually hating the church, the communities of faith. Now, churches are made up of individuals, so you can read that as well, but we can't miss that these yous are actually plural. We are united to Christ, and that is why we are hated. And Jesus is saying it is guaranteed, it's a guaranteed fact that we will be hated because we are united to Jesus. And remember, if Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, Jesus says to him, why do you persecute me when Paul was actually a part of killing Christians? Right? Jesus actually personifies this. He's basically saying when the world causes great pain to the church, it's actually as if it's causing pain to Jesus himself. That's how our union with Christ affects persecution and the way we are treated. So here's the lesson of it out of this, right? If we are living our faith 
in the open, not being a jerk, not being mean-spirited, but in the spirit and posture of love, living our normal, normal life, not being shy, bearing witness about who Jesus is, which is expected of his followers, right? We will, we will eventually receive hatred. So it's no sense in trying to be cool, trying to fit in, trying to be overly relevant. It is a worthless pursuit because we are different than the world. And that is a spiritual thing because our union with Jesus. It's not just because of the way we speak or the way we dress or the way we act. It is those things, but it starts with the fact that we are united to Jesus by the Spirit. Now, Jesus, in a moment, in verses 20, we'll look at here in a second, um, he's going to mention persecution, which is similar to this idea of being hated. Persecution comes in different forms. Here in our country, we'll probably never be persecuted to the, to the extent of um, giving up our life as far as death goes. That probably won't happen in our country. Um, but it could mean that we're very well mean that we're marginalized, that we're told no more, that we may not be welcomed into a friend group um, or an interest group that we want to be a part of. We may look, be, get looked over for a job. We may, we may not receive a raise. We may, not, we may not get that promotion because of our faith, right? Due to our allegiance with Jesus, we might feel lonely, misunderstood, receive strange looks for following Jesus in our city. This is, this is persecution. It's not, as, it's not as drastic as other forms of persecution, but this is part of being hated. And once again, our persecution should flow from our faithfulness to Jesus, not because we're mean-spirited and always looking for a fight. The persecution results as, a, as, as our connection, their faithfulness to Jesus. If you are that kind of person who's always looking for a fight, you may deserve to be marginalized because you're always looking for a fight. Verse 20, let's keep going. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But if all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, which is God, God the Father. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Strong. Whoever hates me, Jesus, hates my father also. If I, if I had not done among them the works that I, no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have, been, they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. And Jesus is saying that their sin is inexcusable. They are without excuse. Jesus, God in the flesh, came and taught with power and clarity, performed miracles, claimed to be God, and showed that he was in fact God because he rose from the dead on the third day. The world is without excuse, Jesus says. We're going to look more at this at the end of our time. But up to this point, we've seen Jesus say, the world, is good, the world hates me, and he's also going to hate you, the church, because the world hates him. But help is on the way. This is the good news. John 15, 26. But, it's a good word in this situation, but when the helper comes, capital H, probably in most of your Bibles, that's the Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, right? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And I love this because you clearly see the Trinity here in verse 26, right? The Spirit comes from the Father, 
Jesus sends the Spirit on behalf of the Father, and that Spirit actually turns around and then bears witness about Jesus, and as a result, bears witness also about the Father. You see the, the three members of the Trinity working itself out just in this one verse. And we're going to look more at the Holy Spirit next week. We're going to take a deep dive into that. Uh, but in this passage today, we do see a few things that the Spirit gives us as a result of Jesus sending the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to help us in three ways. Okay, three ways. The first is here in this verse, right? In verse 26 and 27. We are helped because he, the Spirit, will bear witness about Jesus. And we will also bear witness about Jesus. He is the Spirit of truth. His witness is truth, okay? So here's the deal, right? So part of being on mission, the disciples, again, remember the context. The disciples are receiving this. They know they're being called to a mission, they know they're about to be sent out. Jesus is making that clear. They don't really know exactly what's going on, but they know something big's about to happen, and mission is involved. So someone to help them talk about Jesus, something to help them be good missionaries and proclaimers of the gospel, that is what they desperately need. And this is what Jesus gives them. He's given them a person that lives inside of them to actually help them talk about Jesus, help them witness or testify Talk about what Jesus has done in the world, but also in their lives. And this is such good news. It's good news for all of us who are followers of Jesus to have the spirit who lives inside of us that is actually the one leading out and testifying. Now, it also says that we will also bear witness, right? So we have responsibility, right? We can't just, we're not like robots and we just like let the, let the spirit just completely without us thinking about it. No, we have to, we have to work. We have to be bold. We have to, we have to lean into conversations. We have to put ourselves out there at risk, all the while knowing the spirit is the one giving us those words. And he's the spirit of what? Truth. He always speaks what is truth. Okay? That's the first thing. He's the witness. Second thing Let's look back at verse 17. This isn't technically in our text today, but it's the transition verse between last passage and this passage. He says, Jesus, these things I command you so, so that you will love one another. And we see this so much in this discourse that a lot of what Jesus is doing is so the disciples will stay connected to one another. They will love one another. They will remain a community. Right? They will love one another. This is, this, is, this is talking about the church. This is why... As a church goes, it's why it's so important that we spend time on how we love one another, how we speak to one another, how we care for one another, how we treat one another. Because this is so important to Jesus as he's about to go away. And as we're sent out into mission, all of us, there's something um, really, really comforting and important about doing this alongside other brothers and sisters. That's why we're, we, we should never be sent out alone as a missionary. You should always be sent as a team. Right? As the church, someone to, 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 to do this with. You can find safety and help and comfort amongst other brothers and sisters as you live on mission. And there's another layer to this as the spirit who's helping us and unites us together. You think of all the other churches and all the other parts of the world, some who are suff suffering massive persecution, imprisonment, torture, death for their faith. You've been around any of these people, one of the things they crave is just that we would remember them. The churches in the United States, that we'd remember them, that we would pray for them and pray for their boldness and courage. Right? That is one of the things they ask for all the time, churches in persecuted areas. And so part of the Spirit coming, he unites us all together so that when we pray for the persecuted church, they actually feel it. It's a spiritual thing because we are united together in the Spirit. So he helps us witness 
He unites us as a family. And then the third thing we see in verse 1, chapter 16, he says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Notice, notice what, we're, what we're leaning on there. It's the words of Jesus. I have said these things. Out of my mouth, I have told you these things, and these things should keep you from falling away. Now, why is he worried about them falling away? Right? He wants them to stay on mission. He wants them to continue to follow him, and he knows things are about to get rough, into difficulty, persecution, pain. And even for us today, the world still needs Jesus. And Jesus' goal is not to take us out of a world of danger, at least the danger we tend to think about, right? It's not to minimize our pain. It's not to minimize our comfort. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus calls us into mission, but he does provide comfort. Listen to verse 4, a few verses down. But, but I've said these things to you. Once again, he's saying, I have, remember what I've said. I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So when these things come, he doesn't want them to be ill-prepared, right? Saying, remember, when this comes, I want you to think back to this moment where I'm having this conversation with you, and that would keep you from falling away. So hatred, feeling persecuted by the world, hated by people and systems that are different than the systems of the Scripture, is not a sign that something's going wrong. And I think he knows that's our human tendency, right? Doubting. Man, this world's getting hard. Man, this world hates the church. Man, whatever it is, like that's not a sign that God's plan is being thwarted. It's actually a sign that God's plan is, is it's, it's happening. Something's happening. There's fruit there. It's a sign that God's plan is going forward. It means the Spirit is active in communities and countries and, and in people groups, right? The gospel is being preached. The witness, the Spirit is bearing witness, and hatred is coming which is a sign of something good happening in the kingdom. So when you put all these things together, and Jesus telling his disciples, it's obvious that Jesus's greatest, that the greatest danger for us in Jesus' mind is not discomfort or pain or death. If that was the case, like the disciples' lives wouldn't have ended the way they did, right? The greatest danger for Jesus, for us, is desertion, falling away, losing our passion for the mission, not following Jesus into the mission he's called us to live on. That is what concerns Jesus the most. Not our death, because honestly, death unites us to him quicker. Like, why would that concern Jesus, right? Jesus is concerned about the mission and us being a part of the mission. So the calling that he's given to the disciples, and he continues to give, and he gives it to us, is to come and die. Die to your preferences, die to your wants, die to your desires, and trust that on the other side of those things will bring joy, life, freedom, the things that we really, really need as followers of Jesus. And really things we need anyway as human beings because he is the one that made us. He is saying, stick with me. I'm giving you the spirit. And because of this, you can face anything. You're not alone. So Jesus, to review, Jesus promises us that hate will come, but he also provides help and comfort through the spirit. So how do we handle this? Right? So how do we move forward knowing that we're going to be hated while on this mission, but we're also called to love people well by demonstrating the gospel with our lives and declaring the gospel with our lips? How do we move forward with this? Because we should be feeling this tension right now, right? We, I think most of us want to love people. Most of us want to love people well. But it becomes a lot more difficult when we're, prom when we're promised that, in fact, we will be hated. 
So it's, it's natural for us when we think of hate, and it, it may have happened to you. When you think of people hating you for your faith, or maybe persecuting you, you think of it coming from one direction. Right? And that's just based off our experience. That's based off how we were brought up. That's based off the churches we served in, maybe, the churches that we've been a part of, right? So it's natural for us to see it coming from one direction. But the, the reality is persecution and hate come, can come from any direction. In our country, it can come from Republicans or Democrats. It can come from theological conservatives or liberals. It can come from atheists or New Age spiritualists. Hate can come from any direction. In other countries or um, contexts, it may be radical religious groups. It could be secularism or governments who are opposed to Jesus. Jesus' persecution came from both the religious leaders and the Romans. They say Jesus caught it on both sides as well. If you look at uh, uh, chapter 16, verses um, 2 and 3, he says this, they, Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. That should be a tip on who he's talking about here, right? Jewish leaders, religious leaders, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God, that God is Yahweh. It's the God of the Bible. They think they're serving God, but they're actually not. In verse 3, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. This religious people, religious leaders who, who are persecuting Jesus, who he's talking about in this, in this moment, they're the ones that are causing him so much trouble. They're the ones persecuting Jesus. But we also see throughout the rest of the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that the Romans ramp up their persecution as well. Right? The Romans, the, 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 the giant um, um, Roman government, the, the power, the great national and world power of the day did not like when the church began to expand. And there were emperors that came along that killed massive numbers of Christians because the faith was spreading. All that being said, hate can come on either side. So we shouldn't think hate coming from one kind of group. Give her a stop and ask the question, why do people hate Jesus so much, right? And as a result, the church. Like, why, why does that exist? Why do different groups of people, and not just one group, again, it's all these kind of different groups can have problems with Jesus. Well, here, here's the deal, and we'll get into this more next week, but um, when the gospel is preached into a person's or group's life, it changes, it challenges, I should say, it challenges what that group loves or idolizes. The world and all these different groups that I've mentioned before, they look to power and success and recognition and comfort and control in other things to achieve salvation or whatever they think is going to get, allow them to flourish or whatever the good life is for them. So when the gospel of Jesus is preached and the spirit of truth is witnessing about Jesus through the lives of followers of Jesus, it challenges people. It challenges groups of people. Because Jesus wants a person's first love. He wants their, a person's primary allegiance. He wants the people to find their control and comfort and power and approval and success in him, not in anything the world has to offer. That is what the Spirit is challenging the world in. And when people and ideas, we know this, we don't like our ideas being challenged, the things we hold dear. We don't like that. We tend to lash out. We react. Groups of people and individuals do the same thing when challenged with the gospel of Jesus. And what happens when that's not, they don't, they don't like that and that's challenged? Hate flows. Hate flows. Not, from, not all the time from every group of people, but this is why when hate does occur, this is why it occurs. We are sent ones. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you're a sent one, you're a missionary, 
Providence, at Providence Road, we are not interested in building a club of Christians, nice Christians who just enjoy each other's company and live our best lives now. Because that is not what I am reading in John here. That's, that's, that's opposed to everything that Jesus is saying to his disciples here. But what we're, what we're aiming at is difficult. It's hard. That's why I want us to feel what the disciples were feeling when they were hearing these words. So how do we navigate this tension, right? We must be people who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I think there are two ways to do this, and these two things are intention. These things are hard to keep together. We must be people who, through the Spirit, contend for the truth found in the gospel and God's word. We contend for it. We draw lines in the sand. There there are certain things that we have to stand up for. But we are also people who show compassion, who are gentle. And Jesus modeled this perfectly for us and calls us to follow in his footsteps. So I want to speak to both of those things here as kind of an application point. And, and this is going to hopefully cause you to reflect a little bit. Okay? And, and, and I'm, I'm hoping you pick up on this, but there's an assumption that Jesus is making that if you're a follower of his, you will be on mission. Right? You will have people that you're praying for who don't know Jesus. You will have people that you think about that you run into on a daily life that you're thinking about having conversations with them and showing God's love and Jesus' love to them. That is expected as a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, man, I'm really glad that you're here. And hopefully, this is good news that we're talking about this. Because one, like hopefully you want to know what we find, uh, what we hold so dear. What we're willing to give up our lives for as Christians. Hopefully you want to know, hey, what is the gospel? What does the Bible say about that? What is, what is this Christianity thing all about? Right? That's, that's what, when I'm talking about contending, speaking about the truth, speaking about Jesus, that's what it is. But I guarantee if you're in here and you're not a churchgoer, you want us to do that. You want to be heard. You want to be listened to. You want us to try to get to know you, hear your story, right? Have some compassion as we're proclaiming our, the, the truth that we have in the scriptures. So hopefully you're wanting this as well. So for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, we either tend to lean towards contending or we want to lean towards compassion. So if you're more the person who wants to contend, um, you might feel hatred a lot, or more than the rest of us, right? But are you being persecuted for your faithfulness to Jesus? Or are you persecuted because you're just mean and you're kind of argumentative? It's a real question, right? Are people hearing the gospel from you, or do they feel like you are fighting always about secondary issues? Are they hearing the gospel? Like, I don't want you to stop contending. We need people who will contend, but remember the gospel as you do it. The gospel produces humility in us. Like that we did nothing to deserve God's grace and mercy. Nothing. You weren't smarter. We didn't have better ideas. We didn't have better ideas on how to fix our world. We didn't have better opinions about politics. That is not what saved us. Jesus' grace and mercy saved us. And that should humble us, make us gentle, so then when we come to contend, we have this posture of love and listening while we also stand up and speak the truth. Maybe, we, maybe you need to grow in your compassion and your ability to sympathize with people who don't agree with you, who aren't followers of Jesus. Now we have the flip side, those of you who lean more towards compassion. Have you ever experienced hatred for standing up for the truth? Have you ever experienced that? When is the last time you've contended for something in God's word? When's the last time you've drawn a line in the sand and said, this is what God's word says, or this is what the gospel says? Or this is God's design for flourishing for human beings. You might need to speak up more. 
be more bold, being willing for people not to like you, and be more courageous when it comes to your faith. You keep, the, keep your posture of compassion. We have to have both, contending and compassion. But be willing to contend for your faith. We need both of these. And as far as of Jesus, part of our maturity, part of our discipleship is growing to be able to keep both of these things in tension as we move towards people who don't know Jesus. And you'll see on both sides the importance of knowing God's word. Right? You have to know what's primary in God's word. You have to know what's secondary in God's word. You have to take God's word and be able to apply it to life and happenings in the world. Know what issues are worth contending for and what issues are maybe, uh, maybe you can let go for the time being until you know someone better. You have to know God's word. That's why we always talk about reading it and knowing it and meditating on it, memorizing it, right? And all of this hopefully goes without saying this applies to our online interactions, right? I think these things are polarized. If you lean one way, you probably even lean harder that way online. It's much more, it's easier to be more courageous when you're behind a keyboard. For all of us it is, Right? Okay, so I would work towards finding spaces to actually sit down with one-on-one -on -one and talk to people in the eye about these issues, okay? Be careful what your presence looks like on social media. And because the, the yous in this passage are plural, I want to also mention that we've seen the church um, throughout the history take on overly contending for things, take on more of the oppressor role throughout history, and being the ones to actually, the ones that hate other people, right? And we are to never fall into this trap as the church, all of our contending, standing, witnessing is to be done with love. It's to be done with love. And love is how you say something, the actions behind what you're saying, right? So we have churches that have leaned towards contending too much. But we've also had churches who've leaned towards comforting too much. Right? We see whole groups of churches and denominations forget about God's word and forget about the gospel, and they lost all ability to speak, to speak critique and to be critical of the culture. And that is a bad thing. And some churches look more like clubs that look more like the world than communities on mission that have the good news of the gospel and speak about the Savior of the world. So all that being said, we have to keep contending and comforting in tension, and we're called to do both, right? And we're called to do both. And we've seen Jesus modeling this all throughout the book of John, and he continues in this passage. I want to close with going back to John 15, 22 through 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would never have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I, didn't, if I had not done nothing among, done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. You see Jesus drawing a line in the sand here, right? This is, this is a, you, you've got to believe. You can't love the world and Jesus at the same time. By coming, to, by, by, by coming, Jesus is saying that he has put every human being towards a decision. When he, come, when he came, he brought conviction. And now it's on human beings to respond. And both decisions are costly. I want you to hear that. Both decisions are costly. Um, if you choose the world, to love the world more than Jesus, I believe, as the Bible says, that you are choosing a, a lesser life full of counterfeit hopes, counterfeit loves, and things that will not last. Not a life of abundance as Jesus promises. If you choose Jesus, you may not hear this enough, but it is costly as well. This is what this whole passage has been about, right? You will be marginalized. You will be hated. You will be persecuted. But you will live a life of abundance because Jesus delivers on his promises. He always does. 
You will have a greater purpose. You will be reconciled to God. You will be adopted into his family. You will receive eternal life. And all of this can be yours, not because of your good behavior, not because of something you've done, but because of his perfect behavior, Jesus' perfect behavior. And we don't have to pay the eternal cost because he has paid the cost. He's paid the cost of taking our sin upon himself, taking God's wrath upon himself, the penalty for that, and taking that to the grave with him. And giving us his righteousness, he takes our sin, and when God sees us, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not our sin, and not our um, halfway righteousness. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. He calls sinful human beings to repent. And if you've never put your faith and trust in him and you're here today, I encourage you to do that. He calls us to a decision. And I believe he does that through his word. And we've looked at his word this morning. Jesus promises us that we will be hated. But he has provided help in the spirit. So in light of this, let's be the kind of people who contend for the faith. But also show compassion as we live our lives in this world. Let's pray. Father, I just pray as we're allowing your word to convict us, to shape us, to cause us to evaluate our lives. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we don't have to lean on human wisdom here. I pray as your spirit is is doing um, his work, I pray you would help us be honest with ourselves. I pray that we would be honest of kind of where we're at with you in regards to um, living on mission loving people who are not like us. I pray that we'd be people who would contend, that would stand up for the truth, not be afraid of being bold, but also do that with compassion and gentleness and kindness. For people in here that are not followers of Jesus, I pray that if there's anybody in here right now, I pray that you would stir in them to believe if they have not professed faith. They would trust and believe that you've provided a way to be reconciled to God. I pray that you would do your work this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.